Hello, this is Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today we're talking with former Governor Bev Perdue. We're talking about uh, EdTech, Technology in the Classroom, which was one of the hallmarks of her tenure as governor and which she continues to work on today. Governor, thank you for being here. Delighted to talk to you about technology and where the world is headed and how your grandkids or great-grandkids will learn and, and teach each other. And so, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is something that you've been interested in and working on since you were governor. Um, tell me a little bit first, how did you get on this topic and, and start thinking that it was an important one to pursue? Since I was lieutenant governor, actually working with Meyer Best, who still works with me with DigiLearn, I wanted to make sure every kid in the state had a fair play and field, a level, that their zip code didn't prohibit them from having the best education in the world. So we started a virtual high school back in the early, mid-2000s, and uh, it was a failure. We were so excited. We had a huge enrollment uh, number. But as we did the analytics at the end of the first year, we found out that the kids who were attending our virtual high school were the same kids who were getting good courses already because the poor kids, the kids from rural North Carolina or from inner-city North Carolina, didn't have connectivity. And that spurred us on to figure out a way to offer technology through a sophisticated uh, connectivity platform that would make North Carolina the leading state in the country in what we do virtually. And so what years would, would that have been that you first started working on this? Probably in 19, 2005, some, somewhere around then. We did a commission for a couple of years, and then we went live with the virtual high school. There was already one in Fayetteville, but it was just reaching a very small market. And so when we launched ours, people all over the country were excited. We had a really, again, I'll say a robust enrollment, but it didn't make a difference. And connectivity, even today, is the real challenge for the country. You can't offer equitable education, equity and access, especially to kids who need it a lot because they might be from poor rural or inner city urban neighborhoods without connectivity. And then there's the whole question of the devices. How do these kids do homework at night when the only computer they've ever seen is in their classroom? So the country's come so far with uh, virtual and with all of us having the latest smartphone and digital just being a part of our everyday life, but yet the essence of that life is not available to many, many people in America. And that's what DigiLearn is all about, helping teachers become uh, scholars, digital scholars, pushing forward as hard as we can to make sure that that field for educational opportunity and success as an adult is there. Well, and and since you mentioned DigiLearn, let's just go ahead and and tell people this is uh, the project, uh, the organization that you currently work with today. Tell people a little bit about that and and maybe a little bit more specifically what you do. Right. Well, I do three or four things. Everybody knows I'm way too busy and I have continued to say probably underpaid, but I love what I do. It's philanthropic. I I work with Myra Best, who's the executive director of DigiLearn. We started talking about founding it when I was in my final year as governor, I knew that I I couldn't let go of education. It's been the passion and the driver of my entire adult life. And I'm here as the former governor and doing all the things I'm doing now because I had a good public school education in a poor area. There was no technology then, but I just happened to luck upon a good teacher. And so I know that the uh, 
fundamental focus of education being successful or unsuccessful in a kid's life is the teacher and how the teacher chooses to educate or help educate or enable the students. And so DigiLearn is a three-pronged enterprise. It's, first of all, to focus on digital learning and bring political leaders and scholars and uh, technology company, the business and the public and the private sector together to, to think about what would work in the classroom from pre-K through post-secondary, maybe through lifetime learning, and to develop apps or programming that really makes a difference and that teachers or adults would want to use them for content. And the second thing is you can't do it without a good teacher. But so many teachers in America have not been trained, especially teachers who are over 35. They just weren't trained in a sophisticated, technology-enabled environment. And so DigiLearn works across the state and across the southeast, training and working with and collaborating with a really group of motivated, bright teachers who give some of their time for a small stipend, and they learn to be scholars. So when they go back to their classroom and their school building, they can become the masters of that piece of education. And Alex, you know that education doesn't look like it looked like when even you were a child. You have group learning, you have fo fo people focused on soft skills and on collaboration and give and take. Kids today are being taught in many states that it's perfectly fine to fail because as an adult you'll fail eight or ten times every time you succeed. It's just a whole new way of thinking and that thinking is undergirded by personalized learning and competency-based learning, meaning that you don't have to be in your seat all the time. If you can master a skill, you can go on to the next one. All that takes a tremendous amount of time and energy by the teacher. And so the whole digital platform enables that teacher to work in a different kind of environment in a different space. I'm involved with three or four companies right now who do marvelous content around anything a teacher might want to teach. And there are public domains that are archives of available lesson plans. And so some of the work is easier, but some of the work is harder, and that's why you need a digital scholar. And the third platform of uh, DigiLearn is basically to enable students to learn and grow differently than it's ever been done before. And that will also allow the teachers to uh, learn through working with kids in a different kind of classroom environment or a different kind of post-secondary environment about not always having to do it the old-fashioned way. And they then could qualify for the in-service learning that's required from every teacher. And we're toying, I hope we're going to be successful at it, with developing a micro-credential micro so that a teacher then who might want a different school or a different job will have a different kind of criteria on his or her portfolio. I hope it's a parchment portfolio that's online and that it's not paper and that old-fashioned. But there's just a lot happening there, and DigiLearn is at the, uh, the summit of that work. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like you've come a long way uh, both with uh, your organization and what it's doing, but also with an understanding of, of how technology can be used in the classroom 
And I'm curious, having you know started working on this kind of thing in North Carolina back in the mid to later half of dark the, ages, <laughs> dark, yeah, right? The dark ages. It seems like it seems like a short time ago, but technology-wise, it's kind of an eternity. So, so uh, talk a little bit about the challenges then and how the challenges have changed over time. I'm just thinking about my first iPhone. I was in a political campaign, and my driver, a young woman, was too cool. She had a lot more money than I did, and she got in the car, and she said, Bev, you're not going to believe what I bought myself. And she showed me that phone, and she said, you know, you can go to a place called the App Store, and you can buy all this stuff, and it is just so cool. It's going to transform the world. And I didn't believe her. And six months later, I was getting my iPhone because, indeed, technology was transforming not only the world, but my personal world. And that's where it is now. The challenges are almost the same. It's really incredible that the bottom line is money. And you've got to have money to support any kind of investment in connectivity or in devices or in platforms or programming. And it changes so quickly. I'm on another board where we're trying to decide what kind of technology we can buy to do national testing and how long you can count on that device to work because it becomes old, it's antiquated, and you have to get rid of it. So those are going to be the constant challenges. Way back, uh, maybe back in those dark ages before the iPhone, I began to, in my public political speeches and now in my private speeches, to say that technology should be included in the definition of infrastructure. There is no difference in what people demand from water and sewer and natural gas and electricity than technology. And until the federal and the state and local governments understand that that really is part of the public obligation of a society to help enable it to happen, it's always the chicken or the egg. And if you're caught in a place that doesn't have a lot of money or a lot of access, you are left out because the chicken won't come without the eggs. And so, you know, having worked on this all the way back then and, and seen it through... Please don't make me sound that old. Well, all the way, all the way back then in <laughs> terms soon. of technology. I, it's absolutely another century. So, so tell me about um, how you see North Carolina having progressed in this area. Have we done a good job um, using technology and integrating it in our schools? Do we have a lot more work to do? Where, where do you see us positioned on this spectrum? I think we all have a lot more work to do, but North Carolina has been the leader because in any classroom, community colleges, or public university in this state, you can get super broadband. You can get uh, the speed of Google on steroids. It's just pretty cool what's happened, and the locals pay not a cent for that. The state pays for it all because of a commitment by this legislature, Democratic and Republican, to continue the work that we began. And I'm sure Lieutenant Governor Forrest will talk about that as well. I mean, it's just been a, a, a real investment by our political leadership, and it's one that is unha- unheralded. It's not sexy, it's not important to the rank-and-file voter, but it's essential to learning in the 21st century. I think we've come a long way with teachers who are trained as digital scholars. DigiLearn has made that happen. There are pockets of excellence across North Carolina that are the lighthouses for other states and other school systems around America. We've made it happen here. I think the fact that we understand that this training has to be ongoing and it has to be fraught with peril because it is risk-taking. 
And Digi Learn is pushing for a different kind of education. I do believe that students, and I've believed this for years, who master a skill or a problem or a, a curriculum should be able to move on to the next challenge. It's called competency-based learning. It is not that old seat time. I'm very aggressive on that. Schools must change. Leadership must change. And we all have to allow the innovation. And then finally, I, th I think that there is a, a new national, perhaps international, awareness that kids, as much as we don't talk about it very often or haven't until now, have to be prepared for a world after college or high school graduation. Everybody's going to have a boss, and everybody's got to work. And so technology enables those students to get some of the soft skills and the soft competencies that you need to be successful in a world where 65% of the jobs that a fifth grader sitting in any classroom today are going to be uh, confronting as they enter the world of work because they haven't even been thought of or invented today. That's how extensively change is driving uh, differences in America. So you mentioned uh, risk-taking and fraught with peril, which I thought were interesting words, because a lot of times when we talk about technology, we talk about it as a universal good. Uh, but those words indicate that um, you know, there is some riskiness to it. So talk a little bit about that. What, what is some of the potential peril? Well, uh, the peril becomes, it's not physical or mental peril. I'm not talking about the worries that we have about social media and about uh, the things that you're afraid your own child or grandchild will be exposed to on the Internet. I think that's a family issue, and you, you've got to decide how you're going to confront or condone uh, that kind of access to screen time. I think the fraught with peril is the fact that this country and so many of our states have to be, I believe, more engaged in innovation. For years, we all did it the same old way. We didn't teach in teams. We didn't have kids working in groups and teaching them that it was fine to fail, that innovation is what drives the economy and the world. And those are risky things. You don't know what somebody's going to do or invent, and you can't control the outcomes. You just have to be able and willing to go with the flow. So perhaps when the evaluator comes into my classroom to tell me if I'm a good teacher or a bad teacher, it might look like holy chaos in my classroom, and I might look like a terrible teacher. But at the end of the day, if my kids can get the soft and the hard skills they need to survive and to succeed in life, then I have succeeded. I also think that universities, post-secondary, is going to have to change as well and offer the same choices to the students now who are very quietly paying high tuition and sitting in a lecture hall just like we sat in 30 years ago. And so what does the future hold? Technology is changing rapidly. We're starting to get a handle on how to integrate it into classrooms. We're still trying to make sure everybody's connected. What do you think classrooms are going to look like in the 22nd century? You know, it's the one thing I say that I hate, that I'm uh, at this end of the technology revolution, the very start of it. I wish that I could be alive to see it. I can only imagine it. You know, this week when we put a craft on Mars, you can only imagine the people who established colonies and what the world is going to look like because it will be enabled by technology. 
a classroom, if, if I had my way, you'd have kids in school when they were three years old, if the parents agreed. And all of the preschool issues that confront a kindergartner who didn't have preschool, the social group activity, the ability to even work in groups, wouldn't exist because the children would all have the same equal opportunity in preschool to prepare themselves for a world of education. And then I would let a child soar. I would let the child master everything by competency. I wouldn't make the kid be there 180 days, six or eight hours a day. I let the kid and the family work together on family work schedules. I mean, the dream for school for me is to liberate someone, a whole family enough, to allow the child to succeed and to allow the child to navigate our system that today is so rigid and so structured that uh, the choices post-secondary are limited by what the mama and daddy have pushed. And so you've been working on this for longer than I've been reporting on it. What else do you want to say about it? What else do you think people should know about technology and its potential in classrooms? Well, I would hope that parents go into a classroom that's embedded with technology and see what's going on. They wouldn't believe it. And the other thing people should know is that this effort, again, I repeat, is a bipartisan effort. I've had a great partner, and the state has had a great partner, in Representative Craig Horn, who has chaired the Education Committee for years, and who was very receptive to the idea of this kind of innovation in education as a young freshman in the General Assembly. He has taken up the mantle and carried it for all of the people of North Carolina. So I think, for me, a critical piece is to understand that policymakers must play a role in any kind of educational evolution and that it must be bipartisan. And in this country, at this time we find ourselves in, the whole idea of bipartisan cooperation around a dedicated goal is almost impossible to find. And as much hardship and heart feelings as there's been even in North Carolina, over the past three or four years, or even when I was governor, between parties, the one thing that I can attest to is that we worked resolutely on the idea of making opportunity more available for the children of North Carolina. So those two things are key. Nobody can envision what the technology is going to look like. I wish I could. I would be a, a gazillionaire. But the bottom line is we have to adapt and to be willing to try new things and to use technology to our ability, but to always remember that the key to a successful classroom at any level is a really good, competent, dedicated teacher. Well, Governor Purdue, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. We've been talking with former North Carolina Governor Bev Purdue, and I'm Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.